Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 69 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and this weekend I voluntarily watched a Disney film. Which one? I went to see the new Dumbo. And? It's all right. <laughs> Lovely. Great, because we don't need to talk about Disney films. Exactly. Uh, there's no need to talk about it. I'm Hannah Dunleavy and I need to stop falling over cats. You really do, mate. And uh, on a foot-related issue, I'm Jen Offord and I'm all about the foot mask, apparently. I don't know what that is. Basically some chemical socks that you wear for an hour and then all of the bad skin on your feet comes off and it's delicious. They eat away at the dead skin, don't mm. they? Like, it's like having those little fish in oh, socks. Okay. You must know this, my obsession with PTFE tape, which is plumbing tape, which you can use for absolutely everything. <laughs> Don't know what no, that is. No, this is brand new information. <laughs> this is what's held currently fixed my mobile phone. When you get like a oh. balked cable, you can fix it with PTFE. And uh, that's what I strapped my broken toes together with as well. I was like, people should know more about this stuff. It's amazing. Well, maybe now they do, Hannah. Maybe they do. What You're a welcome. service we're providing. Mm. Yeah. Later on, I chat to global bestseller Joanne Harris about her new book, The Strawberry Thief, and what it's like to smell colours. Mm. I talked to director Lisa Williams about her brilliant documentary, The Yorkshire Ripper Files, a very British crime story. I'm talking all things women's sports in Jenny Off the Blocks. And in the first in our new series, Dunleavy Does Dystopia, we watch The Running Man. Eyes to see you. I <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, wrong film. But first, libertines, wankers, and no sex, please, we're American. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where we're looking at the news with about the same level of enthusiasm as the cure had at being inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And so, the day of reckoning came and went as March the 29th passed with no Brexit. And apparently now it's crunch week. Like, we haven't just had crunch three years, but, you know, why not? Who doesn't love chomping on this interminable fucker? Mmm, tastes like ennui <laughs> and shit. Just so you get a rough idea of how bored everyone's getting, Channel 4 News interviewed Pete Doherty. <laughs> <laughs> Who said some words? What does he know? Anyway, what is crunch week and what does it mean? To be honest, it's a week where anything could happen, which, if recent history is anything to go by, means probably nothing will. In summary, Parliament may or may not seize control. Theresa May's deal may or may not go through. A general election may or may not be called. Another extension may or may not be sought. Teabag may or may not be Prime Minister by the end of it. And Channel 4 News may or may not look for Brexit nows from Justin Hawkins, Miss Piggy or Shergar. How's the media been covering this shit show, I hear you scream? And with the Telegraph allowing Boris Johnson to play out his God complex on the front page, you'd be right to... Scream on, my friends. Scream on. On the telly, the BBC showed segments of speeches at a pro-Brexit rally in Parliament Square, just like it did when the people's... Oh, wait. The rally, it said, was attended by thousands of people. The same number, the Beeb reported, had attended the first People's March last year which was actually attended by 700,000 people. That is technically thousands of people. Yeah. And if you're a fan of false equivalences, you're going to love hearing that Andrew Marr said that Friday's uh, events, at which five people were arrested and Tommy Robinson shouted Islamophobic bile, that many people were angry. But then again, Marr added, a lot of people were angry on the People's Vote March. That's the march that attracted more than a million people and saw no arrests. Meanwhile, over on Channel 4, Jon Snow was so alarmed by some of the people outside Parliament on March the 29th, he ended a report with the words, I've never seen so many white people in one place, 
which left a lot of people wondering exactly what he meant. He meant Channel 4 wouldn't let him say, Kinnell, there's some supremacist scum out tonight. And the terrifying times continue as pro-Remain Tory MP for Beaconsfield, Dominic Grieve, faced a vote of no confidence by his local party on Friday. Though Grieve, the former Attorney General and MP of 22 years, lost the vote by 182 votes to 131, he will not automatically lose his seat. He does, however, face the possibility of deselection. And according to reports, it's all because of pantomime producer John Conway, who stood as Greaves' rival UKIP candidate in the 2017 election and later defected to the Tory party to fight City Hall from within. Oh, no, he didn't. Oh, yes, he did. Hannah, look at you with your clipboard. I believe you've got some stats for us. I have. The very clever people from live from brexit.com have created a site in which you can have a look at the specific details of who has signed the petition to revoke article 50 which is now up to currently as i look at you now six million thirty three thousand three hundred and four people now thousands of people (laughs) well it's funny you should say that because obviously there's been a lot of chat about whether or not these people are russian bots none of which has actually been challenged by the media when people make that claim on TV. But that's another question altogether. But they have broken it down into who has voted constituency by constituency. And it shows you in those constituencies what percentage of the electorate has voted. It shows you what the majority of the MPs that are in there. And there's actually some really interesting figures in there. I would be surprised if the Liberal Democrats haven't got a spreadsheet of this currently open looking at what seats they might be able to nick if there is a general election, because it does look increasingly likely like there might be a general election. Do you think they're going to be able to smash open their emergency party popper? <laughs> Possibly. I mean, I don't know if you fancy a guess of which places are in the top ten. Cities of London and Westminster, Hornsey and Wood Green, are actually up to 40% of really? the electorate has signed these. Bristol West, which is about as Remain as you possibly get. I think they had the highest Remain vote in the whole country. 39.7, so pretty much 40%. And then everywhere else you're going to expect, to be honest, Brighton... Islington, interestingly. Cambridge, you beautiful bitch. 35.6% of the population. So is Halifax, West Yorkshire on there at all? Edinburgh's there. Hampstead. Richmond Park is really interesting. Richmond Park is number 10. That's Zach Colesmith. He has currently has a majority of 45 seats and 27,647 Is he still an MP? He is. If you want to take a look down the bottom, this is not performing particularly well in the Midlands in particular. There seems to be no love for this petition at all. But I think it's particularly interesting because if we get to an election if Labour doesn't come out with a strong manifesto that says we are absolutely ardently categorically a Remain party then Cambridge, Kensington, Hampstead and Kilburn are all at the point where they could be taken by another party Whatever happened to those allegations of electoral offences committed by the Vote Leave campaign, I hear you ask You know, the ones that landed them with a £61,000 fine after the Electoral Commission concluded that the campaign had broken legal spending limits by palming a load of cash off to another campaigner, B-Leave. Cracking name, that, isn't it? If not a little ironic. It turns out that after initially appealing the decision on the grounds that the Commission was politically biased and persecuting Leave campaigners, they've actually decided to drop their appeal after all. Not because their claims are a sack of shit, they say, but... (laughs) They said because <laughs> they've run out of cash. The organisation said, sadly, we now find ourselves in a position that we do not have the financial resources to carry forward this appeal, even though we are confident 
that we would have prevailed on the facts in court. Talking of cash, Tuesday the 2nd of April is slash was equal pay day. The Tuesdayness symbolising how far into the next work week women have to work to match what men earned the previous week. So how are things going? In this world of sunshine, lollipops, rainbows and equality, would you be surprised if I said, they're going shithouse, mate? No. Thought not. The public sector has failed to narrow its gender pay gap this year, with women still paid an average of 86 pence for every pound paid to men. According to latest figures, the median pay gap, that is the difference in hourly pay between the employee in the middle of the range of male wages and the middle employee in the range of female wages, was 14.1% in March 2018, which is slightly higher than the 14% of a year earlier, although still below the national average of 17.9% across both the public and private sectors. The BBC has also revealed that in the NHS in England, the pay gap is almost a quarter, and an independent review of NHS GPs has found a gap of 33%. We haven't been to America in the Bush Telegraph for a while, eh? We have not. What's happening over there? Well, it seems they're losing the will to live. (laughs) Or, at the very least, the will to have sex. As the latest general social survey report showed that America is joining a worldwide trend of celibacy. My absolute disdain (laughs) for conversations about sex notwithstanding, there is a cracking article about it on the Washington Post which posits some interesting suggestions for why this might be. Although some of them you can probably guess. People live longer, for example, and therefore no longer prioritise having sex over getting at least half an hour's kit before they wake up for the first wee of the night, for example. (laughs) That is a full half an hour's sleep. Yeah. But the headline story of all of this is that the number of people aged 18 to 29 reporting no sex in the past year had more than doubled between 2008 and 2018 to 23%. And the largest rise came in men, as it very much wasn't. (laughs) You've got to feel for young people. Really, you do. They are Schrodinger's generation in that they are both fucked and not fucked at the same time. ITV bosses have responded to criticism about its treatment of reality TV stars following the death of a second former Love Island contestant. 2017 contestant Mike Thalassitis, aged 26, was found dead earlier this month, which follows the death of 2016 contestant Sophie Graydon, aged 32, last year. ITV's chief exec told the Broadcasting Press Guild that the broadcaster's duty of care to contestants could not realistically go on forever, but vowed that they would ensure councillors kept in contact with former contestants for longer and in a much more structured way. Last year's winner, Danny Dyer, as in junior, spoke of the difficulties of going from no one to someone overnight. And in a tenuous link to other aspects of popular culture that are fucking us all up, the Royal College of Psychiatrists last week recommended that questions about technology should become a routine part of assessments for children with mental health issues. And the advice comes as concerns about links between social media and poor mental health continue to grow. Perhaps the answer isn't to give people more aftercare, but to give people more pre-care and to actually give people a better idea of what their life would be after it and then give them the opportunity to consider whether they might actually be... Would they do screen them? Stoic enough, perhaps. Well, they're obviously not screening them especially. Well, no. And so, doing what it does best, the internet has once more caused people to lose their shit over something some poor soul thought was innocuous. Remember Penis Beaker? (laughs) Oh, God. Prepare yourself for Bedgate. Jen, Hannah, do you have a side of the bed? 
Well, generally, I actually sleep in the middle of the bed, to be honest. But on the occasions that I do have to share a bed with someone, I do have, I do prefer a side of the bed. Yeah. 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 But I am yeah. actually quite likely to give in easily if it becomes a really big deal. Absolutely not. No. I, I sleep on my own the majority of the time and I still stick to my side of the bed. Yeah. I think it's a thing. In which case, spare a thought for Steve O'Rourke and his partner Amy, who have faced an avalanche of Twitter feces for revealing they do not sleep on the same side of the bed each night. People were scared and horrified and not shy about letting Steve know. First Brexit, now this, said one woman. Steve, Amy, the world just isn't ready for your maverick bed behaviour. Steve says that whoever goes to bed first gets to choose, and then, but they're also their responsibility is to move stuff on the bedside tables. Wouldn't you he just also like... says, we're not monsters. <laughs> Does anyone want any good news? Yeah, go on. Why not? All right, well, big news in the world of raspberry juice. Hey. Finally. <laughs> and indeed equality last week, as MasterChef let some women do some cooking. Finally, women in the kitchen. I know. That's what we've been waiting I know. for. BBC's amateur cookery competition aired an historic final last week in which, for the first time ever, all three finalists were women. The competition was eventually won by Irene Tsortsoglu. She spoke of her admiration and friendship with her fellow finalists, Ginny McCord and Delia Maria Assa, saying, We are three women who love and respect each other and have grown to be very fond and appreciative of each other's talents. Just like us guys, isn't it? Aww. Always bringing each other up, you know. Hannah's, Hannah's always got some big news I'm always in the world bringing some Jen. <laughs> Is it another hairball? Yeah. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where one small step for man is a giant leap fucking nowhere for womankind. Yep, any ideas of escape to outer space because planet Earth is just too damn sexist has been stymied with the discovery there simply aren't enough vests. History had to be put on hold when the first all-female spacewalk, supposed to take place at the end of March, was cancelled because NASA didn't have enough spacesuits in the right size. How many women were meant to be doing that spacework? Ten? Four? Two? Two is the answer, meaning one was the number of spacesuits that fit a woman that NASA had available. Extra irk comes from the fact that the all-women spacewalk was a fluke in the first place, following an aborted launch and a crew shuffle, so it doesn't look like there'll be a reschedule anytime soon. In the interest of fairness, spacesuits are, of course, extremely specialised, extremely expensive bits of kit, and Anne McLean decided to play it safe and opt for a smaller size than the suit she trained in, but there weren't any mediums available. Yet it does remain frustrating that in 50 years of spacewalks, more men named variations of Michael have spacewalks than women. The cancellation of the all-female spacewalk led to a flurry of women in science on Twitter explaining just how many times they've had to choose between missing out or wearing ill-fitting uniforms, safety equipment or outdoor gear made for men because that's all that was available. Want to guess how many times that was? All the time? Pretty much. They say in space no one can hear you scream. Can you hear us down here, science? For fuck's sake. Thanks very much for listening to our voices, but we're keen for you to treat your eyes and come look upon our faces. Our next gig at London's King's Place on April the 18th is a pre-Easter doozy featuring Helen Lederer, Jade Adams and the boss herself, Sarah Millican. It's also followed by a bank holiday. Well, hello, Mr Wine. Get in my mouth. Information and booking details for this and all of our upcoming events can be found at www.standardissuepodcast.com.
Hello, Mickey here. I am with best-selling author and potentially secret witch, Joanne Harris. Hey, Hello. Joanne. Hello, it's nice to see you. Thank you very much for inviting me into your home, which is gorgeous and smells delicious. I like things to smell nice because I can smell colours. I'm never quite sure what things smell around me, but colours and scents tend to kind of be around when I'm around. Obviously, you wrote Chocolat, which is 20 years old. It is 20 years old this year. Can we credit it? How has that happened? Do you know what? I have absolutely no idea. I was told that that book wouldn't sell, that any book in that style wouldn't sell. Um, And I kind of deliberately wrote it against the instructions of everybody who gave me any sort of advice about it, because at the time, that kind of thing just wasn't fashionable at all. I was supposed to be writing something very different, and, and I didn't want to. And so I didn't. So, Vianne Rocher, and I am so sorry I'm going to murder all of the French pronunciations. This is fine. Vianne Rocher is fine. Oh, but listen to you. That was, oh, that was lovely. She talks about colours a lot and seeing in colours. So, I guess that relates to your own synesthesia. I think so. I mean, I have, I don't have much of a basis for comparison. And so, I tend to write about colours and smells as a kind of default. Whereas, I think most writers tend to think in visuals. I tend to think in in sense, and because I relate sense to colours, those two things come out quite a lot. I don't think it would be possible for me to do otherwise. There are lots of different types of synesthesia, aren't there? Yes. And yours relates smells to colours. Yes, scents, and particularly in bright lights, are triggered by by colours. And do you see colours around people? No, not quite, but I kind of, it was my way of adapting and and trying to give a a visual dimension to something that people don't always understand with me. Actually, the idea that red smells of chocolate is is perhaps one step too freaky. The fact that Vian feels in colours and senses colours around people was perhaps easier because it kind of reminds me of, of auras and, and something that people might have been personally exposed to. So Vian Rocher is back. She is. She never really went away, to be honest. The Strawberry Thief is the fourth... In the, do, you, do you refer to it as a chocolate series? How do you refer to them? I don't really think of it as a series because the, the intervals are so large between each book. It, it's a kind of sequence of stories with returning characters, mm-hmm. sometimes with returning places. I think if it were a series, they would be close together in time and they wouldn't stand alone. I do think that they do stand alone. I th- I, people keep asking me this and, and I say, well... Yeah, it, it helps to have read the others if you want to expand the world. But yes, you, you can completely read them alone and out of sequence. And you ought to be able to, you know, the, the few references to other books are so few that I think people can work them out pretty easily. And how do you feel as a writer revisiting those characters or when you bring them back into your world to expand their world? Well, it's not so much me revisiting them as them revisiting me. I think of the characters as kind of existing in a way alongside me. And so I wouldn't, for instance, have wanted to write another Chocolat book the year after Chocolat, or even two years after Chocolat. I needed an interval of time to have passed, both for me and for the characters. And I think, most importantly, with this sequence of books, the characters do change because they evolve with time and and things happen to them and and years pass and children grow up and people die and, and, and all this changes the main characters. I didn't want to write Vian the same every time because that wouldn't have felt true. It wouldn't have felt as if she was a living, breathing person. And so people don't always like it. People 
were quite surprised with the lollipop shoes when Vian had moved somewhere else and time had passed and life had changed her and she changed some of her attitudes and you know some people were going well we wanted her the way she was before why did you change her and I just had to say well I didn't change her life changed her and time changed her and that's what happens when people are alive and the same is true with this book too not quite 20 years have passed for Vian but it's not far off and so inevitably she and I have had a similar kind of experience in parenthood, similar kinds of relationship experiences, similar losses and changes. And so, although I am not her, I'm using some of my experiences to to channel her and to continue with her progress. Could you tell us a little bit about the story of the Strawberry Thief specifically, please? Okay, well, I'm going from the basis that people are more or less familiar with the uh, the previous stories. Vian, who left the village at the end of Chocolat, is now back and has more or less settled down. Anouk has stayed in Paris with her boyfriend. Rosette is now 16. She has various problems, behavioural and psychological problems. Nobody quite knows exactly what her condition is, but she doesn't speak. Um, she doesn't socialise terribly well. She's being homeschooled. Vianne is quite happy with this situation because Rosette will always be there by her side and she feels that she's never going to lose that particular bit of her little family. The florist opposite Vianne's shop uh, in Lanskenet is an old man called Narcisse who pops up in some of the other books and he dies, being very elderly, and leaves all his property to his daughter except for a wood which he leaves to Rosette. The daughter is very put out because um, she feels that the value of the land has been reduced and she is also absolutely convinced that there's something buried there, some kind of treasure, uh, the money that she feels her father should have had and didn't. Um, she's convinced that this is the reason he's left the wood to Rosette. He also leaves um, a written confession to Renaud, the priest, even though he didn't like Renaud at all. And Renaud feels that, in fact, he's being personally targeted by <laughs> this decision to, to leave him a long manuscript that he has to read he's out, of, out of duty. He's not happy at all. And Narcis tells a story at some length about his own childhood and various events which, which are revealed slowly that happened during the war. And, and the, the situation eventually gets, gets unravelled. It, it's a bit of a long journey for Renaud. You know, he's a character that, that was not particularly likeable in Chocolat, who has found ways of perhaps being more acceptable to people. And, and there were a few loose ends around his past that I wanted to to try to, to tie up in The Strawberry Thief, and I think I did. Meanwhile, Narcisse's shop has been taken over by another shop owner, a woman who Vian mistrusts immediately. Partly because her arrival is very like Vian's own arrival. Yeah. And she feels that they have something in common and she's not happy about that. She, she's scared she feels, of the similarities. She does. She yeah. feels that, well, she's had a bad experience with a similar kind of woman who almost got away with stealing her children away from her. And so now she feels that there is some kind of challenge being delivered by, by this woman, who is a tattooist, in fact, and who has opened a tattoo shop. She's not only a tattooist, she is, she's a woman who doesn't have any feet, who has prosthetic feet, and around whom there is a kind of magical mystery. In The Strawberry Thief, as in with a lot of your books, there's that beautiful magic realism and actual magic 
Where does the fascination with that world stem from for you? And the kind of magic that I write about it is, it's not a magic for special people. It's not, you don't have to have a special Hogwarts education or, or be born a wizard or anything like this to, to have magic. It is entirely a human characteristic. When you look at the words that describe magic, other words for magic, we've got words like charisma and charm and glamour and enchantment and all these things. And these, these things have dual meanings, all of them. One is the fiction, the folklore of magic with all its pyrotechnics, and the other is the language of the human heart. And so the magic that I write, and particularly in these books, is very much a kind of dual magic. It is, it is the magic of runes and inscriptions and, and chocolate and the history of chocolate and the chemistry of chocolate and the science of chocolate, but it's also the magic that you can do alone, the things that you can do to change your world, and, and those are not necessarily supernatural things at all. Have you ever cast a spell? Have you ever sort of dipped your toe into that water? Oh, all the time. Yeah, I cast spells all the time. A lot of people, a lot of English people particularly, and I say this as, as somebody who is at least 50% French, that there is this, this kind of occult significance to smells and the idea that you, 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 know, you, you, have to, you have to burn candles and you have to sort of sprinkle herbs and speak Latin and this kind of thing. But you know, my, my, my grandmother and my great-grandmother used to do spells for everything. There were spells to make the bread rise. There were spells to, you know, to keep the cat indoors. There, there were spells to make you lucky on certain days. And, and my great-grandmother used to, used to tell fortunes based on a system that she had evolved personally. It was based on the little pieces of thread that people who in those days wore long dresses would accumulate on the hem of their frock. And so depending on whether it was a Wednesday and the thread was red or yellow, and it was in a particular place, then it would, it would have a particular meaning. And, and certain flowers you couldn't bring into the house, or if you did bring them into the house, they were bad luck and you had to say a certain spell yes. to dispel the flowers. Yes. Dandelions particularly, but also what you call the marigolds, uh, the name of which means troubles in French. And so if you brought marigolds into the house, then you'd be bringing trouble, unless you had a spell which meant that you had to sweep the house ten times with a shins while singing a little song. And all these things, I was brought up with this. And so to me, smell, spells, I keep saying smells, but actually there, there isn't that much of a difference. Spells and nursery rhymes were very, very similar in my mind. And actually, when you look at your mother goose and the history of English nursery rhymes, you see that actually a lot of them are magical mm -hmm. in construction and they all have hidden meanings and they all have ritual significance, which brings us back, of course, to, to faith and religion because praying and spells are not that different. They both have a ritual element. They both have a mind-altering element. They are both things that people will go through to take them from one state of mind into another state of mind. And hopefully both are supposed to be transformative. I'm very much of the, the school of belief that if it works, then it works. And whether that's prayer or lighting a candle or thinking happy thoughts or doing a chant or visualising something in your future, if it works, then fine. I wouldn't really question what it was. I am going to get that spell for keeping the cat indoors off you. Absolutely. Go, yeah. <laughs> There's a whole load more of my chat with Joanne heading to your ears this Sunday when we talk about the despair of empty nest syndrome, pinkification, let books be books, fighting for authors' rights, a valentine made of hair 
and being a Twitter legend. That's Joanne, not me, by the way. In fact, you can and should follow Joanne on Twitter at Joanne Chocolat. Her website is www.joanne-harris.co.uk and that includes all the details of her book tour and The Strawberry Thief is available from all good bookshops. Don't forget to tune in on Sunday to hear me continue to destroy every French name I attempt to pronounce or, you know, hit subscribe on Acast or iTunes so it's there waiting for you. Hi, Hannah here. Some of you may have seen that last week the BBC aired a three-part documentary series on BBC4 called The Yorkshire Ripper Files, A Very British Crime Story. It's a documentary series about how attitudes to women affected the Yorkshire Ripper investigation. Last week, I caught some time on the phone with its director, Lisa Williams. You can watch all three episodes, and I suggest you do, on the iPlayer. First thing Mm -hmm. I need to say is this is really, really excellent. I watched all three parts in one go. I couldn't stop watching it. Anything that has footage of a young Richard Madeley mansplaining a rape alarm. (laughs) You grew up in the North. Can I ask what your impressions were of the Ripper case before you started this documentary? So I was born a couple of years after Sutcliffe was caught. I was born in 1983. So I, I remember people talking about the Yorkshire Ripper and him being this scary figure. But I didn't know much about the detail of the case. I didn't know much about the investigation until I started researching it, really. So I was coming to it with completely fresh eyes, without any sort of preconceived ideas, which I think was helpful in, in lots of ways, because I, you know, I've seen things completely afresh, which I think was the point of the, of the series, really. It definitely does feel that way, because I have to say, when I first saw there was a documentary about the Yorkshire Ripper, I thought, oh, that's going to have to be doing something very new to make me watch it. Mm-hmm. And the good thing is, you you are doing something very new. Were you surprised at the level of sexism that you saw investigating this? I think I was surprised at how overt it was. So everybody knows that, you know, what the 70s were like and times have changed a lot. I was surprised at how openly people would talk on camera in a way that was, is just completely unacceptable. And people have said to me, oh, well, that's what the time was like. Everybody spoke like that. And the fact is, a lot of people did. You know, it, it was from a cross-section of society. We're not just talking about police officers. We're talking about the whole of society here. But even, you know, people knew that that it wasn't that speaking like that and, and describing victims of crime in the way that they are described. There was outrage from certain corners of society and from certain people. You know, it clearly wasn't a way to talk about people and people did highlight it at the time. But I think the, the way it was so overt and so open is what shocked me. And just you just repeatedly hear it over and over again in the archive when you're watching the archive through. It's just an accepted fact that some victims are deemed innocent and some are of loose morals, some are doubtful moral character you know it's really shocking to hear people just say that openly yeah in a police press conference and and everything Mm. yeah and for journalists to then repeat it and put it in news stories if it's just a fact and then the general public repeat it the most Mm. extraordinary vox pop that you have in there in which a woman says a bad man is a bad man but a bad woman is a bloody bad woman and she's She seems very proud of, of, of that this is her belief, and it's quite Yeah, incredible. she's talking about um, living in a red light district. She's talking about sex workers that, um, are near her house. It, I think it's important as well that it's not just men that talk like this. Women talk like this as well. I think women can be misogynistic as well, which seems strange, but it, it, it's definitely you definitely do see that in the footage, that women are making these judgments of the victims as well as men. Even to the degree the prosecution 
We're using yeah. some very sexist language. And, and of everyone yeah. in this story, they should be the good guys. And it's not questioned. I think that's the thing. It's not questioned. The things that are said in court are just seen as fact. They're seen as perfectly fine things to say. But I think when I was looking at that section of the story, that is when I did. Because I think that the reason we wanted to do this to a large degree was because there are things to be learned. You know, there are parallels with today. Obviously, things have changed hugely. Policing's changed hugely. But you still do see parallels within cases today. And you still do see that in court. Often a defence team will completely rip a victim to shreds um, to try and, you know, reduce their credibility and will victim blame. So it hasn't completely gone away that. And I think that's why it's important to look back on these cases, really, to learn from it. Oh, absolutely. The, the idea that a curfew was even touted, a curfew for women, which is so preposterous, but at the same time, you hear sort of a, a, a moral curfew that's put out now that people say, well, what was she doing yeah. out on her own that late at night? Exactly. There's, de- that, there's a definite parallel there. Like I remember when I was doing the research, I saw a story. There was um, a man attacking women in London near a tube station. And the advice put out was that women should stop wearing headphones because um, then they'd be more aware of their surroundings. And I just, that's not the problem. Women wearing headphones is not the issue here. It's, it's that men attack women. And it's just about the way we're constantly told that we have to modify our behaviour to avoid being like the victim of, of violence or sexual violence, which is just, if that hasn't gone away. I don't think that's changed that much, really. No, not at all. I don't want to say that it's acceptable for some people, for some women to be killed, but that's that's almost at the stage it is, because if you look back at the, at the so there's an cre- incredible piece of footage in this where it was around the time that they've, they've got hung up on the idea of we're so jack. And, mm. and a policeman said, we can't cater for you know, someone just going out and killing the odd woman. Yes, yeah, uh, we can't cater for the killing of the odd female. It's just it's it's just bizarre, isn't it, that you would come out and say that? Yeah. You know, it, it's almost like, it, yeah. you know, it, it's a fact of life that women will be murdered by men. And we just have to, it's, you know, it's, it's not nice and it's not, you know, it's not a good thing. But, you know, we can't really do anything about it. And yeah. It's just nuts. When I was Cheney reporter, I worked with a woman who had worked at the Yorkshire Post as a reporter during the Ripper inquiry. And mm-hmm. she told me how much her life changed as a reporter, not from working mm-hmm. on the case, but from where she was allowed to go. And she said to me something that a woman in this says, which is you cannot possibly understand unless you were there yeah. the absolute terror yeah. of being out on the street and unless you're a woman as well i think one of the journalists you know says you know in the newsroom the men would be oh big story big story and the women would look terrified every time you know a new attack came through i mean that was literally every woman in a hundreds of miles radius eventually wasn't yeah. it yeah you know the fear i think every single person i spoke to you know the fear is hard i think to imagine now I think one of the one of the journalists said to me, I think Jeremy Thompson said to me, he said, you know, it's I, I don't remember a story that had an effect like this. You know, you get if you, if you cover a terrorist attack or something, another horrific crime, you get a huge amount of fear, you know, that's sort of condensed and isolated around that event. But with this, it, it years, you know, people were scared for years. And, and it's hard to think of other crimes where that where that is the case. But they were right to be scared as well, because I think one of the things that shocked me the most in this was that reports of harassment of women on the street went up during the Ripper murder time. Yes. Yes. One of the contributors did a study 
um, Joanna Hamner, she did. She was an academic, and she did a study shortly after Sutcliffe was convicted, and people, you know, women reported having being harassed more. It was like an excuse. There's lots of anecdotal evidence as well of men jumping out at women from bushes and saying, "Oh, it's the Ripper." Seeing it as one big joke, really. It's, that is just incredible. Yeah. For a start, you would think that men would do everything in their power or should do everything in their power to not make women feel unsafe on the streets. But actually mm. to to then act out in that way is absolutely yeah. staggering. And the media yeah. does bear a lot of responsibility for this. Absolutely. The fact is that the, what the films explore is how these attitudes affected the police, the police investigation and whether he could have been caught sooner. And they clearly did. You know, I, I think they clearly did affect the police investigation. But we're all part of the same society, aren't we? And the media and the police had a very close relationship. And the building up of, of the myth around the killer, I think, was 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 very problematic as well. It built him into this this sort of mythical being. Some people sort of looked up to in a weird way, I think. Like a like a folklore thing. Yeah. Yeah. You you've been getting a good response to this. Yes, yes, we have, yeah. Lots of good feedback on Twitter and things, I think. You know, you usually expect to get a bit of abuse. Where, you know, I've had lots of really good, positive messages from people that say, you know, I, I remember this. This is how it was. And I think when you look at all the archive, it's really hard to not see it. It hits you in the face. It really does, the way that that women were talked about. It's obvious, we spoke to Hayley Rubenhold, who's written a book called The Five, which is about the victims of Jack the Ripper. And she right. has oh, been, yes, I've heard about that. Yeah. She has been receiving quite a lot of views. <laughs> uh, let, let's call them that. Because people get very sort of touchy about a mythology is then created that this is the story. This is what happened. And you can't yeah. go back and revise it. And people idolise these sort of killers. And I think the thing is with Jack the Ripper, because it's so long ago, people sort of forget that it's real. Yeah. They forget that there's real victims there. It just seems like a story. They don't treat it with the same level of sensitivity, I suppose, that you would do if it was somebody that had killed people, you know, now. What do you think the overriding lesson that we learn from the Yorkshire Ripper case would be? I think it's about listening to victims first and foremost. Not listening to victims and not trusting victims is something that that comes it comes out in modern cases sometimes these days you know it, you know we all know it does and so it's not something that we've completely rectified obviously policing is completely different now i've made lots of films with police who are incredible at their job and who go to the ends of the earth to you know to get justice for victims but there are still cases that that come up where that doesn't happen you need to listen to people and, and what they say you know when they're victims of crime i think that's that's the most important thing can I ask what's up next for you? Literally just finished this, so I'm still. I was literally still finishing up the films last week. So, oh wow, um, I'm going to take a bit of a break. <laughs> so I'm going to take um, a bit of a break probably and have a think about about what to do next. Are you interested in more crime? Because crime is big at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, I mean potentially, but I think there always has to be a wider reason to do it. I don't think it's good enough to just break over these stories just for a sensational thrill that people enjoy hearing about crime i think we were very very conscious from the beginning with this that there had to be a point to it and everyone seems to be getting that point which is great and i think that's because it was just at the heart of everything we did we very consciously don't talk about 
Peter Sutcliffe until the third episode. We limit the amount of time we give to him on screen. It's not about him. It's about the victims and the investigation and the huge impact that those crimes had on our country. So I think that you have to be careful what cases you choose because they have to have some you have to have something to say, really, that, that is helpful to us today. All right, it's Janet. Sorry to interrupt your listening experience. If you like what we do here at Standard Issue and you want to keep hearing some excellent content made by excellent women, yeah, us, we know, you can do so by visiting our Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash Standard Issue and chucking some dollar our way. Thanks very much. You play ball like a girl! Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we talk about football again. But, you know, it's women's football, so it's not so bad. Lots of football news this week, actually, because, you know, football. But also, there is a World Cup coming up, so that does tend to happen a little bit. It's actually all good news, which tends to happen rather less, so let's embrace it. First up, we are talking cold hard cash because two wonderful sponsorship deals have taken place since last you heard from me, including Barclays, who you may remember used to be the sponsors of the then called Barclays Premier League. I think it's just called the English Premier League now, but I'm sure it's sponsored by lots of brands. Barclays are said to be stumping up over 10 million quid over a three year period to sponsor the Women's Super League, which starts as of next season and is really, really amazing news. It's been described by Chelsea manager Emma Hayes as a watershed moment. And she added, the next big moment is to find a broadcasting platform. And I just think, Sky, you are idiots if you don't jump all over this, given the other women's sports that you've snaffled up and backed in recent years. Hayes also said that the move would leave the US, which has one of the more advanced domestic league structures for women's football, lagging behind. And we'll come back to that in a minute, but before we leave sponsorship, here come the reductive representations of women. Not anymore. Thank you very much, Boot, in case you didn't get the reference from my slightly dodgy singing there, who have signed a three-year deal also with the England women's team, but also all of the home nations teams. According to the FA, the partnership is going to focus on telling the stories of inspirational role models represented in women's football to inspire active participation from young girls and women, which is, of course, very welcome. Ka-ching. And back to the US, because England have been lifted in the FIFA rankings by their recent She Believes Cup victory, and they will go into the World Cup ranked third in the world. That's just behind the US, who are top dogs, as it were, and Germany. So look, that investment could be absolutely massive for women's football here in the UK. Someone who wants to see more of that investment is Mr Philip Neville, the manager of the England women's team, who says he wants to see big clubs throw open their stadiums for women's matches, and that follows a record-breaking match in Spain on March 17th, which saw over 60,000 Atletico Madrid and Barcelona fans turn out to see them play at the Wanda Metropolitano. And I didn't mean to pronounce that like Alan Partridge, but as you know, I'm from Essex, it happens. Now, to put that in context for you, that's more than the average Arsenal match attendance during the 2017-18 to season. I mean, it was a difficult season for Arsenal, to be fair, and, you know, fans were a little bit less willing to go, but we won't, we won't do it on that. 
So I'm not 100% sure I agree with Neville. I know, controversial. I think we would have to do things in a really different way to justify it, like what they did for the recent rugby women's Six Nations, where they held matches directly after the men's and then gave those attending the men's matches a freebie, basically. But I do think that is worth doing. Or, as Susie Rack wrote in a really great article for The Guardian the other week, when clubs like Spurs hold test events for a new stadium opening, as they just have done, why not give their women's team a chance to shine, as well as, or instead of, their youth teams? Because we are making up a 50-year deficit here from, you know, the time when women were basically banned from playing football. So I feel like, you know, they could help us out a bit more. Now, as I mentioned in my last Jenny Off the Blocks, moving on from football, The Telegraph, who I don't usually like to big up too much, have just launched their new women's sports section, headed up by Anna Kessel, who is the editor of that. And I have to say, they're already churning out some really, really interesting stuff. One such article about the lack of financial, medical and emotional support offered to injured female athletes caught my eye last week. It's really interesting and sadly in no way surprising and I fully recommend you have a look at that if you're interested in such things. They've also launched a new campaign, Girls Inspired, which aims to close the gender sports gap in schools, which is something I think we can all offer our support to. So check that out as well. What else has happened? Well, the England women's cricket team beat Sri Lanka to win the T20 series. And in tennis, Australian Ashley Barty, who I have to say I've never massively rated, moved into the top 10 of the Women's Tennis Association rankings after beating Karolina Pliskova in the Miami Open final this week. What's mad is Naomi Osaka, who came from pretty much nowhere to win two consecutive Grand Slams, is now number one. Not a sniff for us Brits, though, as unfortunately Joe Conte has dropped down to 45th place. That is all from me this week. Hit me up on Twitter, where I am at InspiraGen, or even Instagram, if you like pictures from Vladimir Putin calendars, no, really. Where I am at Jen Off. Two N's, two F's. And tell me what you make of all of this. I'll be back next week with more from the world of women's sport. Welcome to Dunleavy Does Dystopia. Dunleavy, what vision of a future hell did you watch this week? This week I watched 1987's The Running Man which stars, rather unsurprisingly, Arnold Schwarzenegger and, inexplicably, Mick Fleetwood, <laughs> Jesse Ventura, <laughs> Dweezil Zappa. It's got music by Harold Faltermeyer. It's got choreography by Paula Abdul. It's based on a book by Richard Bartman, who we all know is actually Stephen King. I mean, this thing's 80s pedigree is extraordinary. It couldn't be more 80s if it was covered in orange breadcrumbs and served with birds like potato waffles. <laughs> they are waffly versatile. They are. So when are we? When are we? 2019. No. Wow. In the film, Hannah. 2019. This very year. <gasps> this film is set in this very year. I'll tell you what's happened. After a referendum... Which <laughs> <just> <laughs> No. After a total economic collapse... Which oh, actually, right. yeah, yeah. on the money. The United States has become a totalitarian police state. Oh. Fair enough, yeah. Censoring all cultural activity. The US government pacifies the population with bread and circuses, which largely focuses around game shows, the most famous of which is The Running Man. The Running Man. <laughs> Meanwhile, good guy and military man Ben Richards is framed for a crime he didn't commit 
and finds himself on the running man. Are we nearly there yet? Are we nearly there yet? I don't know. Uh, this is, you've both watched this, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. So I thought we could like split this into some some key areas of of what it looks like in 2019 mm-hmm. compared to where we are now. Okay. So what areas have we got? Technology? Technology. Um, I mean, this film, I think, is quite extraordinary in that it's one of the only films set in the future where the technology appears to be actually worse <laughs> than the time in which it was made. There's a lot uh, of clipboards. There are a lot mm. of clipboards. I mean, basically, the entire world is run by something that's slightly less technological than CFAX. <laughs> There's a guy in it who's basically the computer whiz because he's the guy that knows how to press four buttons on a keypad. Hey, he remembered a six-digit code, Hannah. <laughs> There are some things that I think that they're, they're basically they predict Alexa in that people come in and say lights and turn on this music and do the certain things. That seems to uh, yeah, manage to exist. Do you think like the clapper already existing <coughs> though? You know, when you clap and the yeah. lights go on. It's basically the same thing, isn't it? They've, they've advanced it a bit, Joe. Right, Come fine. on, let's give it its yeah. little bit of due. On the other hand, we're in, in this version of 2019, people are still very excited to receive a VHS video <laughs> and, uh, and a board game. Oh, my God, um, they'd have fucking loved Bullseye, wouldn't yeah. they? <laughs> they can. Well, funnily enough, the, the crowd of The Running Man is somewhere of a mix between the crowd that you get in Big Brother and the crowd that you get in Bullseye sort of mashed up together. Oh, see, um, I think they're more Jeremy Kyle meet Tommy Robinson fans. <laughs> they, they have predicted that it's for it, how people will digitally manipulate pictures. Andy Serkis' career is kind of laid out. It's a bit hit and miss, but it's not that far off. Okay. Yeah, I, yeah. There are still a lot of analog phones yeah. and cassette tapes. Yeah, but I love that. In the eighties, that was the future. Okay, right. The elephant in all of our rooms: women, women, yeah. wowzers. To be clear, there's only really one female character in this, and even the word "character" is <laughs> is, is slightly stretched. Um, she, she does sit ups in sexy underwear for no reason whatsoever. She does. What the fuck else do you want, guys? <laughs> I mean, every, all the other female characters in it are essentially dancing around or old ladies that have a bloodlust, basically. <laughs> but it's quite interesting. When she gets put into... She's played by Maria Conchita Alonso. When she gets put into the game, basically, she is damned by, by uh, a look at her love life. That's how the crowd mm. are turned against her, which claims that she slept sometimes with two to three different men a year. And the crazy thing about that is that rant he gives in that, I kind of feel like I could actually imagine Donald Trump tweeting that. Yeah, absolutely. That actually doesn't feel too far. But really, her only job in it is to scream, pow, ask an interminable amount of questions. She shouts, let me go a lot. Every single thought that she has, she she, she says... There's an incredible bit where she's watching the TV and they say something that's a lie and she looks and she says, but that's simply not true to herself. Come on, Hannah, credit. She does remember a six-digit code. She does remember a six-digit code. She does a lot of bad running. Almost all the trouble they get into is because of her. She has a late-stage total change of personality, which is kind of attributed to him. Yeah. And she seems to enjoy, although Wikipedia claims that it ends with them walking off romantically together, I'm not entirely sure that him standing with his hands around her neck qualifies as romance. Do you not think that he's going to be one of her two to three a year? <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. Um, get, get Arnie in the quota. So I don't know. I mean, women are still very much judged on their sex life in this version of 2019. I'd say that seems pretty accurate. Yeah. So in everyone's vision of the future, 
women are still subservient. But what about cars? Are they flying? Flying cars? No, people are still driving cars. Although the good news is, if this is an accurate prediction of the future, airport security is about to get a whole lot more lax. Yeah. There's a bit basically where he's trying to go through a scanner and he can't find his pass and he just, oh, and they go, oh, just go through, mate. Just go through. Can't It'll be, be bothered with the hassle. Off yeah. you pop. I was most excited by the monorail, 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 monorail. <laughs> Future LA has a monorail. Wowzers. I know, right? I bet the people of LA are well excited. Does this film predate Docklands Light Railway? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, let's say yeah. Let's Probably. Say yeah. yeah. Politics. I think you've got something to say about that, Mick. No, that's fake news, Hannah. Fake news yeah. that I've got anything to say. How very dare you? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? There's a lot of fake news coming from the totalitarian US. Uh, it does happen with totalitarian regimes, to be fair. Exactly. Fake news. But it mm. is also prescient. Yeah. Um, also, the President of the United States has his own theatrical agent in The Running Man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Christ, but he was an actor. Yeah, so there's a lot of fake news and they doctor footage of Ben Richards, who, can we just clarify, is a very good guy, to make mm. him look like he, he slaughtered 1,500 yeah. people. He's a very good guy. But he does kill quite a lot of people in it as well. Only the light light baddies, Jen. Yeah. It's a series of end-of-level baddies that get progressively more hilarious. What are people wearing, Hannah? Uh, Inexplicable things, Jen. (laughs) Inexplicable (laughs) things. I mean, for the the most part, everybody seems to be dressed largely like they would in the 1980s. Yeah. Um, Arnie has a particularly interesting look that he adopts at one point, which is Park Rates of Wrath. He's got, like, the dungarees on. Mm. But he's got a cigar yes. at the same time. But also, he's got a hard hat. It looks mm. like it came out of a Bob the Builder costume <laughs> that you buy in Tesco for your kid. That is an intriguing look. What I thought was quite interesting, and uh, uh, as in it's not fashion, but it kind of falls into pop culture, is that there's a point at which that Mick Fleetwood, again, inexplicably in this film, Mick Fleetwood makes a quip about Star Trek to another geek, and that, that person doesn't know what Star Trek is. Can you imagine a world in which geeks don't know what Star Trek is? I can't. I've tried. Yeah. Um, Also, inexplicably, Mick Fleetwood is wearing a fake nose. Brilliant. (laughs) Um, And I'd like to point out that I'm actually wearing head-to-camel-toe yellow spandex in honour of Arnie. (laughs) 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 Well, athleisure wear today is very popular. Yeah, Maybe it did point. have something to say about fashion. Good point. I quite like that rebel dude uh, with the Dweezil Zapper. I don't know. He has wonderful hair. And a beret. Yeah, it's yeah, Diesel. He, he looked like um, Wolfie Smith. Yeah. yeah. I don't Simpson know who Smith. that is, but <laughs> who is Wolfie Smith? Can you imagine a time where people don't know who <laughs> Wolfie Smith, Smith is? is? I literally don't know what you're it's, talking about. Yeah. Lindsay was Wolfie, Citizen Smith. I know what you mean now. Okay. Yeah. He didn't have hair like that, though, did he? No, but it did he have the, the whole shake, shake a far a look. Yeah. yeah. It, was, it was definitely, what costume represents rebel? Oh, this one. <laughs> ah. And finally, the onlookers, the mob, Hannah. What well, do the they have to say? To? Well, yeah. they're very easily influenced and angry. So, I mean, that <laughs> seems quite accurate to me. Although I will say to, in this, to be fair to them, Coke now costs $6 a can. I'd be angry. Yeah, I'd be kicking the machines. I noticed that there are a lot of old white people who like opera. Absolutely thrilling in watching people's futures be destroyed. <laughs> <laughs> Ring any bells? Okay, so in The Running Man, was there a lesson that we failed to heed? Any sort of Cassandra moment? You know what, actually, I think there's one thing that this film does really well is it it effectively predicts reality television. The dry ice, the big drama, the big production. Damon Killen 
in this, who is the, the the bad guy who runs it all, presents the the show, is Simon Cowell in this scenario. But he knows how to wear trousers. Just putting that out. Yeah, that that is a good point. And there's a bit in it where he actually defends what he's done by saying that he's only giving the audience what they want, which is actually an argument for why reality TV programs that people like will say. Oh, but if people stop watching them, they'd stop making them. Yeah, the idea of big production shows with a baying mob outside. I mean, it does feel very Big Brother. It does yeah. feel very... It, it kind of feels strangely possible in an odd way. I think what it's based on, sort of in theoretically, is is what Gladiators was, has spun out of control. If I mean, the television programme Gladiators. But you know that was inspired by The Running Man. Yes. The film. Yes, but also, I mean, it, it's an idea that's been picked up in Battle Royale. It's been picked up in yeah. The Hunger Games, the idea that people will fight to... I mean, it's not the only programme in which people fight to death. There's also another thing in it which you have to climb a rope for money while dogs bark at you. I think it's called Climbing for Cash or something. Yeah, you see it advertised in cash. it. Because it was also... The film was sort of taken a lot of aspects from a Japanese television yeah. programme where basically you got tortured till you couldn't stand it anymore. Yeah. For the dollar. And then the again, end, I saw I something the other day on Japanese television in which a guy gets wanked off by... Uh, did you not see this? Japanese programme no, in which... No, you're on your own here. In which people are made to see if they can get through a karaoke song while the host of the show wanks them off. I am not making that shit <laughs> up. I'm amazed you didn't see this. This is all over Twitter about two what, weeks ago. What is the... <laughs> Sorry, is the idea that you... You, if you can get through without like without completion, yeah. Completion. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, let's not get into the logistics. Just, I don't understand. I mean, stage fright. Anyway, whatever. I'll stop talking. Does she does she wank off women? Is it uh, equal opportunities? I don't think so. Mm, not on the bit I saw. Okay. And, and, and to be honest, the bit I, only I watched saw six hours. The, <laughs> and the clip I saw on Twitter did not make me want to watch any more. What do they sing? Anyway, the, the long and the short is, is this an accurate prediction of the future? No. I mean, it has some good ideas. The separate question is, I suppose, is this a good film? Also, no. Um, oh, come on, we've not even talked about Dynamo. <laughs> everything in this film is stupid. Literally everything. There's not a thing that happens in this that doesn't make you go, oh, for fuck's sake. Like, the, the denouement, spoiler alert, the denouement in which they, they managed to show the video, the video, incidentally, that she found behind a card that said, clandestine units. <laughs> and, uh, oh, my God, I laughed for a full 20 minutes. And later says, unedited raw footage. Oh, oh, un- unedited raw footage of stuff other people must never see. Yeah, which is it's just so hilarious. But in it, when they actually put that on television, this footage, where does it come from? It's got a POV shot from Arnie in it. Where, where was this being recorded from? I don't understand it. Also... When it all goes to chaos in the end, it continues to appear on television, despite the fact that everyone's run away. Who's, who's filming it? Who's still making this television programme at that point? When they walk out together, when he's got his, uh, his arm around her neck, and it's big shown on the screen, who is still filming this? It makes no logical sense. The crowd shots are stupid. They haven't really got a big enough crowd, so they try and make it like look like they have by making people walk in different directions. <laughs> but for no logical sense, when the entrance is there, people will cross over like that. Brexit betrayal march. Um, the, uh... <laughs> it's just, it's, it's, it's full of shit performances. Terrible. Arnie, obviously, is shit in it. The only woman, Mar- Alonso, is shit in it. Now, I mean, it might be because of the way they're being directed, and I suggest it possibly is, but I will say there are actually two really good performances in it, and that is Richard Dawson 
and Jesse Ventura, Jessie both Ventura. of whom are playing essentially exaggerated parodies of themselves. Jesse yeah. Ventura, the wrestler mm. who plays Captain Freedom, who has to dress up as a cheese grater at some point <laughs> in this. And Richard Dawson, who is a actual game show host in America or was in the 80s. And was played... also in The Love Boat. Yeah, but he My did Family Fortunes, man. but yeah. he also plays exaggerated parodies of himself. I think those two are really great performances. The rest of it, I think, is absolutely appalling. But you're right, it did go on and inspire things because it also went on and inspired something called Wanted, which I don't know if you remember, was on the TV mm. in the 1990s on Channel 4, inexplicably hosted by Richard Littlejohn, in which two people <laughs> oh God. two people were let loose. Is this with the backpacks on and then someone in a helicopter? I think you're, that you're thinking about Hunted, which is a modern version of it. No. This was in the 90s. They had to go and stand in a telephone box for the entire duration of it. If they could remain in that yeah. telephone box without people identifying what telephone box around the country they were in. They got to keep the money. Which is fucking little John. I'm thinking of the thing with Annika Rice. Yeah. Oh, Challenge, Challenge Annika. Annika. No, with the oh. thing, I think it's Annika Rice, where there's like people with backpacks and then she's in a helicopter and wearing a cat suit. Oh, do you mean Treasure Hunt? Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. Just going back to Wanted... Is Richard Littlejohn wanking them off? <laughs> <laughs> no, he's just wanking himself off. Oh, okay. there. right. Yeah. While box. singing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell me, did you guys like it? Would you, would you ever watch it again? Yes. I would probably imbibe some stuff and watch it again. Yeah. It's, it's hilarious. It's Dynamo. It's just basically Matt Lucas's big baby after wrestling a Christmas tree and losing. And yeah. he sings opera. There's a lot to love and to deride. <laughs> I'm quite squeamish. It's probably not for me, to be honest. But um, yeah. Chico, no! <laughs> I can see. What does he say? He had to split or something. Yeah. Who does he say that about? Bustle. I mean, that's the crazy stuff about it. That they, they, they obviously wrote it and then Arnie wanted more quips. Yeah. So they had to write extra bits into it so he could have quips. So people would say, incidentally, what happened off screen while I was looking away? And he'll say... He lost his head. <laughs> Here is Sub-Zero, now plain zero. Um, well, there you go. Another thing that they predicted, the only way to get through this shit show is by keeping a sense of humour. How many Arnies get to the chopper? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I, I would give it... I mean, like I say, is it, is it a good film? No. Is it a lot of fun? Yes. I mean, I probably give it three, three, Arnies. three Arnies out of... Seven. Seven. <laughs> Three Arnie's out of five. Do you do it out of five? Yeah, yeah, do it out of five. Okay, and what are we watching next week? Ne- next week, let's watch Gattaca. Ooh. Oh. To space. Gattaca, uh, yeah, which is about genetic engineering and the oddest death, I think, ever ever in a film. Lots to look forward to, though. Yeah. Standard issue for all women.